Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Um, You know, today I'm excited because we're talking about a subject that is so important to anybody who is thinking about getting a kidney transplant or has a kidney transplant. And it's really about assessing your transplant kidney health and understanding what you can do to make sure that you keep that organ as long as possible. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Phil Gautier. He's the Natera Medical Director for Organ Transplantation, and he's going to give us an overview of, uh, you know, how to assess your transplant kidney health. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lori. Well, you know, I found it really interesting because I, I think a lot of people don't know this. But in 1954, Joseph Murray and his colleagues at Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston performed the first successful kidney transplant from two twin brothers. And, you know, this was done without any immunosuppressant medication. Do you know anything about that case or were you taught about it in uh, Oh, in yeah, it's very, it's very famous. And I'm also a transplant nephrologist before I joined Natera, so I have taken care of hundreds of transplant recipients in my career. So yes, I know the story well. It's an interesting story. And and uh, the patient, uh, Richard Herrick, had uh, glomerular nephritis. And he was in the hospital for two months, and they didn't have dialysis then, and they thought he was doomed. But uh, they realized he had a twin brother whose name is Ronald. And because they were twins, you know, the problem with kidney transplant is that your body will recognize the organ as foreign thinking it's like an infection and and try to destroy it through the immune system. And scientists knew even back in the 30s and 40s that if you had an identical twin, your body wouldn't recognize the organ as foreign since it's genetically identical. And it just so happens uh, that Richard's brother Ronald was an identical twin and he volunteered to donate. So they did the transplant and it was highly successful. Wow, that's amazing. So it's amazing back then they understood the immune system well enough to... To know, and I like the term. I always use like a, a kidney or a transplant is somewhat like a splinter in your finger. It's going to try to push it out. But I like the infection too because it it sees it as like inflammation, basically. Like, wait, we don't recognize that it's inflamed areas, so we need to send our our antibodies to go go take it out. And sadly, that's how all transplant organs are viewed in our body if we don't have an identical twin. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah, and he um, donated the kidney. The recipient uh, lived another eight years uh, afterwards. Unfortunately, he got his same kidney disease back in the kidney, so it wasn't rejection. It was just his original kidney disease came back. But there was another happy ending to this story, and, and that is that uh, Richard the recipient, while he was in the hospital, actually fell in love with one of his nurses, and they subsequently married and had two children. Oh, that's really sweet. You know, I love those little anecdotes, Uh, and and I'm a big believer, you know, chronic kidney disease is is like any other illness that I 
I can recall because we take such serious maintenance either through, you know, frequent visits to the transplant center or to our dialysis facility. And it really does become a family environment because you spend more time with them than your own family members. So uh, you had mentioned you were a transplant nephrologist. What got you interested in transplantation? Yeah, well, there's a number of things. I I guess number one, and, and this kind of flows from the story I just told you, is that you know, transplant is all about love. It's all about people being willing to sacrifice a part of their body to help someone else. And it's just such a beautiful story every single time, whether it's a living donor who uh, volunteers to undergo surgery, or if it's a deceased donor whose family, even in the moment of knowing that their loved one has died, they can still think about someone else's health and someone else's life and, and donate that kidney. It's just so moving to me every single time. And I just, as soon as I experienced that in my training, I knew I wanted to be part of that. It's also such, as you well know, it's such a better treatment for patients than dialysis. And it was hard for me when I did my general nephrology training to see how difficult dialysis was on patients and how hopeless they often felt. And when I learned about transplant and saw how much better of an option is, I knew that's what I wanted to do. It's also very interesting um, academically with all the immunology and all the other factors you have to consider. So I just love it. Well, you know, the more I learn about the immunology part, especially um, getting my fourth transplant back in 2011, I had 100% antibodies and, you know, innovation and, you know, a lot of medication, um, IVIG, rituxan, and the different treatments, um, you know, made it possible. And today my creatinine is 06 it's it's amazing, wow, and I have no blood pressure problems, no fluid retention. Uh, it's quite amazing. And, you know, just to see the evolution of how we've learned to treat or, or understand w- how the body decides to start rejecting the kidney and what signs it has. Um, so tell us a little bit, and I don't know if this is always average because I had a third transplant that I left the transplant center with a 2.2 creatinine. It was a deceased donor, 36 hours out of the body. It didn't work for like three weeks. (laughs) It was just, and I left the hospital with 2.2 creatinine. And they said, well, you'll get a few good years out of that, right? That kidney lasted me 20 years. I mean, it was just, it was just phenomenal. And it never rejected. I, and I don't like the word rejected. I like to say putter out because we have enough rejection in life. And I don't right. think, I don't think, um, but I always say it's just puttering out. That's what's happening. Um, but what is the average lifespan of a kidney transplant? I know it's a generalization, but I think it's important for people to know a transplant is not a cure. It's a treatment. Exactly. And that's something I always would stress with my patients. Um, and before I answer that, let me go back to something you said. I totally agree that rejection is not a really good term because uh, when we talk about rejection as in your immune system recognizing the kidney, uh, that can be treated, especially if it's detected early. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose your kidney. It may just mean you need more medication. So I do think rejection is not the best term, although I confess I haven't come up with a better one yet. I'm still working on that. It needs a tune-up. It needs a tune-up. It's, it's unhappy. Sometimes I'll tell patients, your kidney's not really happy right now. We need to cheer it up a oh, bit that's, or something that's, like that. That's a good one. <laughs> 
Um, it's the best I can do right now. Uh, so to answer your question, so the average time a kidney will work in your body is 10 years if you get one from a deceased donor or 15 years if you get one from a living donor. Of course, average is average. Uh, some kidneys only work for a year or two. Um, on the other hand, I, I have taken care of patients who've kept their transplants for 30 years and are still going strong. So there's no upper limit. Uh, transplants certainly can last the rest of your life, especially if you take good care of it. Uh, but about half of patients do wind up at some point losing their kidney transplant and having to uh, either return to dialysis or, as in your case, get another kidney transplant. Yeah, it's uh, no fun. Um, my first two never worked back in the 70s and early 80s. And, you know, what they know today is like they would have never worked. So um, it's right. amazing how, how far we've come. Uh, so why why are some of the reasons kidneys don't last so to answer your question, there's a variety of reasons that kidney transplants don't last. The most common, though, by far is rejection, which we've already discussed. And that's because even though we do have lots of medicines we can give you to prevent rejection, they don't work 100% of the time. They're not completely effective. And sometimes the immune system can start to react to the kidney. And then, and it's usually not dramatic. It's usually something that occurs over months or even years. Eventually, your immune system will gradually damage and then destroy the kidney. This is especially true in patients who don't always take their medicines properly. Right. We always emphasize to patients the importance of taking their medications properly. But unfortunately, many of them uh, occasionally will miss a dose or sometimes stop taking them altogether. And that almost invariably leads to the kidney being recognized by the immune system and eventually completely destroyed. Well, and I just wanted to mention, you know, I have this conversation over and over again on a daily basis sometimes that, you know, you take your transplant meds to keep a level of protection in your bloodstream so the kidney doesn't reject. And it's just like going out in the sun. You know, you got to reapply the sunscreen um, to get protection. And if you don't, you could get burned in that little little window of time that you decide, oh, I didn't need any sunscreen. So um, it's so important to take them consistently because it's all about the levels. And uh, just, driving that, just driving that message home because it's like I can't say it enough. Yeah, and I'll sometimes describe it to patients as, you know, your the medicines are helping your kidney hide from your immune system, and as long as it's completely hidden, you're fine. But if you stick even one little toe out, your immune system says, wait, what's that? And it starts to get really interested, and eventually right. it finds the kidney completely, and then that's it. So even missing a day or two of medicines can be enough for the immune system to get that little peak and start, you know, ramping up and, and activating against the kidney. Um, so another reason kidneys fail, as was the case with the first kidney transplant that we discussed, is sometimes the original kidney disease comes back. Now, some kidney diseases never come back. Some do come back frequently. And unfortunately, right now, there's not usually any way to prevent that. Yeah, that's horrible to have a reoccurring illness. Yeah. But it happens. I have a friend that's had four transplants, and he's got them all from his family, all living donors. Wow. Um, you must have and, a great family. You I must know, be a nice person. I know. <laughs> and he came in fifth in America's Got Talent. Um, he's wow, an incredible magician. And they're very good matches, all of them. I mean, it's amazing. So Good for him. I know. That's a, that's a story of love. That's for sure. <laughs> it is. 
so that's what's great about transplant is those stories, you know. There's you know, so many of them out there. It, it is. It's it's they're they're never short of inspiration. So c- can you maybe talk a little bit about how you currently monitor? You know, how does a transplant nephrologist really monitor your overall kidney health? Sure. So the most important is lab testing, and there is a test that we use commonly called creatinine, and this is a protein made by your muscles and your kidneys clean it out. It's not a harmful protein, but when the kidneys aren't working properly, or kidney in the case of a transplant recipient, because we only do one, uh, the creatinine levels can start to rise. This is the way we diagnose kidney disease in patients who haven't had a transplant. It's also one of the ways that we monitor the health of a kidney transplant. So if the creatinine rises, we suspect that maybe something's wrong with the kidney, whether that's rejection or something else, uh, we don't know. The problem is creatinine is not a very good test for that. It's not very sensitive. And when we say sensitive, we mean how likely is it to detect a rejection. In fact, according to studies, it's only about 52% sensitive, which means if you have 100 patients with rejection, it will be detected in only 52 based on creatinine, so slightly more than half. And the other 48 patients with rejection, their creatinines won't indicate that they have a rejection. So it's really not a very good test because there's so many different things that affect it in addition to the us. Is it true that, you know, when your creatinine starts moving, that kidney may be found by one of those little antibodies? Um, Right. And so it's kind of a reactive measure. Right. It's reactive because often one of the problems with it is it often doesn't increase or otherwise change until rejection is already established. So it it can be a very late indicator of rejection. Uh, The other problem is there's many other types of kidney issues that can cause it to increase besides rejection. For instance, even if you're just a little bit dehydrated, the creatinine can go up. And you've probably experienced this Mm -hmm. as a patient a number of times where your creatinine's up a little bit. So they tell you, oh, go home and drink lots of water. We'll check it again in a few days. And then often it's, it's right back down. So it's just not a very good test. It's not sensitive, so it doesn't detect rejection well. It's also not specific, meaning that many other things can uh, cause it to go up. Yep. I, uh, I've, I've witnessed that, too, because I've had an infection, and my creatinine bumped up. Um, and then right. as soon as the infection was resolved, it came right back down. Well, that's good. I know. It didn't cause me any long-term harm. Because whenever you have some kind of infection, it does cause an inflammatory response in your body, and it can allow your your kidney to be seen, as you said. <laughs> or, right. or where is it? Where is it? It's, oh, it's over there in that corner. Exactly. And that's a problem. Yep. So what are some of the other um, ways that you monitor or can tell? So one way that's very good but invasive is a kidney transplant biopsy. So this involves putting a needle in the kidney, taking a piece out, looking at it under the microscope, and then we can tell if there's rejection. We can also tell if there's something else wrong with the kidney. Uh, Of course, that's invasive. You have to come to the hospital. You don't usually have to stay overnight, but you have to avoid any kind of heavy lifting or physical activity for three or four days afterwards. Um, Biopsies are generally safe, but there is some risk. Uh, Occasionally, patients have bleeding. Although it's very rare, there are cases of patients actually losing their transplant after a biopsy because of some kind of complication. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the idea of putting a needle 
and a kidney is always scary to me. I always know right. that that's a really, it's a great way to tell, and it has to be done if it, you know, is preventative. But um, tell us a little bit about the new innovation that's coming down the pike and what we're learning to um, detect potential rejection. Yeah, so there's a new test um, that came out a few years ago. There's a couple companies that uh, have a similar test. Uh, my company, Natera, has Prospera, and I've already mentioned the website, natera.com slash prospera-podcast. And this is a test based on something called cell-free DNA. So cell-free DNA is uh, DNA that circulates in the bloodstream. It's not in any cell, and it can be detected by lab techniques. And what's interesting is when you have a kidney from someone else that's not an identical twin, we can actually detect that other person's cell-free DNA in your body. And it can be a sign based on how much of it is present that the kidney has some kind of problem, especially rejection. So if the kidney is very happy, we see less than 1% donor-derived cell-free DNA. That's cell-free DNA from the donor. Uh, but if that level is 1% or higher, that can indicate rejection. And unlike creatinine, which was only 52% sensitive, this test is 89% sensitive. So out of every 100 patients with rejection, this test will detect it in 89 patients and only miss it in 11 patients. So it's actually a very good way uh, to detect rejection. And it usually will detect rejection very early. In fact, sometimes it even goes up before the rejection happens and it can actually anticipate a rejection. Uh, so this is much better than serum creatinine. Well, and I've I've had the test done, and I've had actually four. And uh, at one point, it was one point four, uh, but it was after an infection, and then luckily it went back down to you know it runs like point eight, point nine. With having four transplants, that gives me a level of security. Uh, I used to do a happy dance when I got the creatinine, and now <laughs> I'm like I don't really do a happy dance as much because uh, I do a happy dance when I get that test back because i'm like whoa i'm really good um yeah uh, and, that and, makes sense because creatinine so indirect you know it's not right. a direct measure of your kidney but the sulfuric dna is a very direct measure of whether the kidney's happy or not i know it's kind of hard to to retrain your thinking because uh you know anybody who has a transplant lives and dies by their creatinine which is a wonderful thing to you know even be aware of it every transplant patient should be aware of their labs and what they mean and if you have a high blood pressure or if you have any types of protein in your urine anything like that i mean your doctor will work with you to you know those are ways that can harm your kidney what is um i just had a question about is that the same as like a donor specific antibody or is that separate than the DNA. Yeah, it's different. So donor-specific antibodies are when you actually make antibodies to your donor. And the problem with that as an um, assessment of transplant function is it's a very late finding because the immune system goes through several steps when it recognizes something as foreign. And one of the last steps is making antibodies. So by the time you're able to see antibodies to the donor, that usually means there's been activation of the immune system for some time before that. And often there's actually rejections that have happened. Maybe you didn't know about it. Uh, they weren't detected. But often when you see donor-specific antibodies, there's already been at least a mild rejection that was missed. So DSAs are not, or donor-specific antibodies are not the best way to, to monitor 
graft health. Well, I I have one donor-specific antibody that I've had since 2011, and it's a B8 antibody. And it hasn't done anything to the creatinine. It's like, you know, they can give me some treatment and I'll get it to like mild, but it hangs around moderate. And, but we can't seem to get rid of it. And, you know, it was funny because my doctor said, well, it's not a super bad antibody, but it's friends of bad antibodies. It's like, likes to hang out with some bad antibodies. And luckily I haven't developed anymore. There's not really much more we can do to... Uh, right now, based on my creatinine and my all the other tests, we just chose just to leave it. And I'm a believer. I'm like, you know, we're going to find out in the future. That's the antibody I needed to survive. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, right. I always have that attitude. Like, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Maybe they'll find out that was one I really needed um, for something. Um, and so, you know, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, getting the test. Because, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show... Um, sometimes the kidney community is a little discombobulated in the sense that, you know, you get transplanted, you go to the transplant center, and then you're referred back to your, your local nephrologist, internal medicine doctor. And sometimes they don't always communicate. I still go to my transplant center twice a year and then follow up with my uh, local nephrologist, internal medicine doctor. Uh, but can you explain a little bit of the dynamics? Because I, I sometimes think some local nephrologists aren't as well versed with transplant as um, some people may think just by their title. Right. So that's a good question. And, you know, medicine in general and healthcare also is becoming more specialized. So all nephrologists have some training in transplant, but of the two years of training that they get in nephrology, only maybe two or three months uh, is actually with transplant. And although they see some transplant patients after they finish their training, most of the patients they see are dialysis patients or patients with chronic kidney disease. Now, transplant nephrologists, on the other hand, do an additional year of training after their general nephrology just in transplant. And the vast majority of them spend their career only taking care of transplant patients. So they just have a lot more experience with transplant patients. They usually work at transplant centers, so they see a lot of new transplant patients and also monitor uh, patients post-transplant. They're also very involved in selecting patients who are candidates for transplant as well as selecting people who are candidates to be a living donor. And, you know, one of the things in healthcare is that it changes so rapidly, it's hard to keep up with everything. And even if you are a general nephrologist who knew a lot about transplant at one point, it's very unlikely that over the last 10 or 20 years, you've kept up with all the changes and all the new technologies mm-hmm. and all the new medications, just because you don't see it as often. And, you, you know, there's only so much time in a day to read and keep up with the latest developments. So increasingly, like everything else in healthcare, it's recommended that transplant patients are cared for by transplant specialists, not just uh, general nephrologists. Well, and, and I'm a, a big believer in that. And when I was uh, in my earlier days of my 2.2 creatinine, um, I went at least every year to my transplant clinic. Um, but now since I'm, you know, have 100% antibodies, I go twice a year. And it is because they're on the cutting edge. And I find myself, I was educating my nephrologist about this new technology. Right. So, um, so how does one go about, like, I mean, I believe transplant patients, every single transplant patient should have this test. 
I mean, there would be no yeah. reason not to have it. Right, exactly. There's no reason not to have it. It's a simple blood test. It can actually be done even with mobile phlebotomy. So a, a phlebotomist can go to your house and draw it. So this is particularly useful during the COVID pandemic. So you don't have to go out and go to a hospital or, a, or an outpatient lab. So, I, yeah, I think every transplant patient should have it, especially in the first year, about once a month. And then even when you've had your transplant for more than a year, we recommend getting it about every three months just because you never know when you have rejection. And as I said earlier, if the rejection is detected very early, it can be very effectively treated. But if it goes too long, uh, it's harder to treat and there may be some permanent kidney damage or even in the worst case, you know, completely losing the, the kidney. Um, now, general nephrologists do also order the test, and they use it as a way to know when they need help from the transplant center. So if they order the test on a transplant patient and it's normal, they can be fairly comfortable or very comfortable that that patient's not having rejection. And if the test is high, then they can call the transplant center and say, hey, I have one of your patients. I think they may have an issue. Um, you know, can you please help me or can you just see them in your clinic tomorrow? So it's useful for both general nephrologists and transplant nephrologists. Well, and it's the blood test. It's just a simple blood test they draw with other blood. And is it does insurance pay for it, or is there any out of pocket cost? Yes. Yeah, so um, insurance does pay for it. It's covered fully by Medicare, and most transplant recipients have Medicare, although not all. Uh, not all commercial um, insurances cover it, but our company is very committed to working with patients who need the test to keep costs down. Um, and we can almost always arrange a mutually satisfactory payment option. So if you had a, a patient who came back with a, a little bit higher test of showing that there was some DNA in the bloodstream, what may be the course of action you would take? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it depends on the clinical scenario. So the test is used in two ways. So the first way is if something is wrong with the kidney, like the creatinine's elevated, and as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of reasons the creatinine could be elevated, the most serious of which is rejection. Um, now, in the old days, before this test, we would always have to do a biopsy, but now what we can do instead is order the test. So if we order the test and the test is a little bit high, since the patient's creatinine's elevated and we're a little bit worried, I would recommend then doing a biopsy to make sure that they do have rejection and to determine exactly what type it is because there are different types. And right now the test can't tell what type it is. And there's different treatments for the different types. If the test is negative in that scenario, then you can say, okay, this patient doesn't have rejection, so let me see what else could be wrong. Uh, but it's not nearly as critical because it can, it's almost always something that's much more easy to treat. Now, on the other hand, so if the patient's stable, everything's great, and you're just doing the test for monitoring, and it's a little high, you don't necessarily need to do anything right away because we do see some fluctuation day-to-day -day for various reasons. Instead, I would recommend repeating the test in a couple of weeks, and then if it's still high, then you might need to do a biopsy. There might be some exceptions to this, like someone like you who's had four transplants and has 100% antibodies, you know, the, the risk for rejection might be a little higher. So if you had a positive test, I might recommend you get a biopsy uh, pretty quickly, even if your creatinine was normal, just to make sure you don't have rejection. It's so amazing to me that this technology is available because I see so often that people who have a transplant 
they think they just kind of have a cure and they just kind of go on their way and then they're like, oh, I'll go get my blood checked every couple months and then it goes to maybe every six months because nobody calls me to say, come get your blood drawn. I have to go make the appointment and at a minimum, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, I get my blood drawn every two to three months. Uh, yeah, and that's the minimum I would recommend for anybody, even if they're years out from their transplant and very stable. Because things can go wrong, you never know. Even if you're taking your meds uh, consistently, there can always be a rejection. Right. It's just not a cure. People have to get that in their head. It's not a cure. Uh, what do you right. What do you see? Or there have been any studies, or, or is the is the thought process that how can this kind of monitoring increase the life of a kidney transplant? Yeah, so we think it will increase the life of a kidney transplant because what we know is that most patients who lose their kidneys, it's because of rejection. And often it's a very advanced rejection and they had never previously been diagnosed with rejection. So we're very sure that the majority of those patients probably had some rejection at some time that wasn't detected either because they didn't get their labs or their creatinine wasn't elevated. Because remember, out of every 100 patients with rejection, 48 are, it's not going to show up on your creatinine. So almost half. So probably what happens is they have a rejection that's not detected. We call that subclinical rejection. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And by the time it becomes obvious, it's because they've lost their kidney. So we are sure that with uh, more frequent and more accurate monitoring with Prospera, the cell-free DNA test, that we will detect more of these rejections at much earlier stages and be able to treat them effectively. And kidney transplants should last a lot longer. Well, and, you know, that's the goal because there's a shortage of organs and you don't want to have to get on right. the list for another one. So, you know, what should a patient ask their doctor? Like, how should they say, hey, I think I need this test? Um, what would be the right way to approach their healthcare team about this new um, monitoring device or monitoring yeah, test? Well, I think you know, the way I approach these conversations, I always think it's best to start with questions. So I would ask your doctor, you know, have you heard of cell-free DNA testing for organ transplant rejection? And if they say no, then you can explain it to them and maybe uh, send them to our website and uh, teach them about it. If they say yes, then you can say, well, what are your thoughts on me having this test? Do you think I should get it? And if so, at, you know, how often should I get it? And you kind of start the discussion that way. Yeah, that's that's a good way instead of saying, can you just order that test for me? That's what I usually right. say to my doctor. We're good enough friends. We've been, you know, he's been my doctor for over 30 years. So I can, it's like being married for a long time. You can say that to a long-term spouse, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, one, one of the things I thought was really interesting that I think people don't understand. There's two types of rejections that I think people aren't aware of, and there's acute rejection and chronic rejection. And can you explain the difference? Because you could have a creatinine going, you could be in chronic rejection for years, and, right. uh, and it could be a slow process. Yeah, and that's and that's the main difference is we, we tend to now say more, uh, we more commonly say active rejection than acute, but it's the same concept. So um, acute rejection is rejection that happens very rapidly. Um, it's often more clinically obvious because it does cause the creatinine to go up. But chronic rejection is sometimes I call it smoldering rejection, like 
low level and it's not bad enough to become clinically obvious, but it goes on for years and years and you gradually chews up the kidney. You know, it's like your immune system's gradually destroying the kidney slowly over years. And then by the time you notice it because the creatinine's up, the kidneys, you know, you may have lost most of your kidney function. And at that point, you may need another transplant or dialysis fairly soon. Well, and it, it's interesting because kidneys are so miraculous that right. they they work and work and work and they keep compensating and overproducing and you feel fine. And then all of a sudden you're like, what, I'm in kidney failure? I mean, yep. so it's a, it, I hear that story. I mean, I know you've heard it over and over again, but they are so good at compensating and just making everything work. And then you get to like under, you know, 15% function. You're like, oh my God, I feel like crap. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, that's because exactly the right. And, yeah, and, you know, the kidney is actually six million little mini kidneys called nephrons, and every every nephron is the same. And what happens is you start to lose those nephrons, but the remaining ones just work harder. So you can lose, you know, half your nephrons, maybe even three-quarters of your nephrons, and nobody knows. But then eventually the ones that are working really hard just get tired, and then they all kind of quit at the same time, and then that's total kidney failure. They go on strike. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. I'm, I'm being overworked. I don't get I'm any breaks. <laughs> so you know, this is so interesting. I mean, innovation and transplantation, uh, with all the research from other industries like HIV and you know the immune system and what we're learning about inflammation, it's so fascinating to me because it always reminds me to stay hopeful. No matter what your situation is, somebody's working on it behind the scenes. Right. And uh, I, I guess just to follow up, I think this has been very interesting and I hope people will ask their doctors or send them, you know, the best way to get to, to communicate with your doctor is most of us are on the computer and we're in a little system. Just send them a little email. Say, have you heard of this? What are your thoughts? Here's the link. And then they could have some time before your visit to, to right. look at it. Uh, what are, what is your hope for the kidney community? Well, I hope that everyone goes to natera.com slash prospera dash podcast to learn more. Uh, you know, my hopes for the kidney community is I, I just wish there was more awareness around kidney disease because right now one in seven Americans, that's about 34 million people, have some form of chronic kidney disease. And only one out of 10 of those people even know that they have chronic kidney disease. And for some reason, and I never really understood why, you know, just the public at, at large is not as aware of chronic kidney disease as I would think they should be given how common it is. I mean, everyone knows about breast cancer. Everyone knows about lung cancer. Everyone knows about heart disease. But you say, I have chronic kidney disease, and people are like, what? You know, what, yeah. what's that? No, I, I could tell you why. But why? go ahead. I'll let you finish, then I'll tell you why. Yeah, and I was just going to say, and even more people are at risk. Some estimates, as many as one in three Americans are at risk for chronic kidney disease. So I just wish there was more awareness, both both amongst the people that are affected by it, that they have it, but also the public at large. This is a serious disease that affects millions and millions of Americans. Well, I have I have a thought process about, you know, being a lifetime patient with this illness. And, you know, I think, number one, the kidneys aren't very sexy. 
You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the heart and the lungs and stuff like that. You get more attention. I mean, we're right down there with the colons, okay? I mean, and I'm not being mean, but it's so true because people don't relate to your kidneys. They don't understand that they're the master chemists. The The interesting thing about kidney disease is that we have an incredible opportunity when our kidneys fail to you know, have a treatment other than transplant or a bridge to transplant, which is dialysis. And I really think they should change the name of dialysis to life alysis because oh, it's the one. only, I know, it's such a bad word, dialysis. And, right. you know, it's difficult. I was on dialysis for 12 years, but it was a bridge to get me to transplants. It was a bridge to live my life. Um, you know, you can make a good life being on dialysis. You have to adapt. But I think, you know, since we have so many crossroads when we have chronic kidney disease and are on dialysis and maintenance, is that uh, I like to say it, it leads to a lot of opportunities to have bad experiences where, you know, you went to dialysis, you didn't have a good treatment. Uh, It's just like the more you fly, the more you'll share about your bad experiences. Um, Because nobody says, oh, my God, I had the best flight yesterday. There were no interruptions. People say (laughs) I had the worst flight. And so there's more stories of just, uh, you know, treatment or people don't say, hey, my kidney's been doing great. They don't report that. They report when something is going wrong. So since there's so so many cross-sectional encounters of things going wrong instead of what's going right, uh, I think people tune it out because it's too much. And I've had this experience so many times when, and and that's why RSN is so much about survivorship and um, and every year we do an annual essay contest. um, And it's incredible. I get like, uh, over 100, 150 essays from people around the country who have kidney disease. That's great. And it's wonderful. We're doing our 18th essay contest right now, 18th year. And every almost every year is like people tell me, a patient wrote that? Wow. And And somehow... Uh, and I've experienced this, you know, my kidneys failed, not my brain. So there's some there's some connection that people believe that if you have kidney disease, you aren't as, and, I, and this is just my own belief of what I felt, like is you're just not as, as vibrant or not as able to do what other people can do. And I'm a big believer that, of the country does what you expect of them. So there's a very low expectation often of people who have kidney disease. And I don't know what that is, but I know personally from RSN, I have been trying to combat that um, as being a person who's lived with the illness. I need to hear more stories of hope and survivorship and thriving and seeing what other people do to live fully with this illness. When I go to some other organizations, it's just the message is mixed. It's like research, find a cure. Well, I have the illness. I need to hear about how I live with it. And and then the branding of the, to the to the general population. Uh, I think, you know, changing the name to life Alice's, changing the name to making, we just did a whole campaign called Share Your Spare uh, a kidney campaign. We had 
stuffed kidneys and we call them. We, it's a really fun educational book and trying to make kidneys more relatable uh, because people relate to heart, but you don't feel your kidneys. They just are these little master silent chemists that live in your body right. and they do everything. They are so underappreciated and need a raise, in my opinion. So yeah. uh, that's a little bit, I mean, I could give a whole presentation on this because I have felt it my whole entire life. And hopefully things will change, but uh, uh, it won't be as soon as I want it to. Well, if it does change, it will be largely thanks to people like you who are, are living with the disease well and, and understand it and are taking steps to reduce its impact on, on Americans and indeed everyone in the world. And, and not being afraid to get the diagnosis. I mean, right. you know, a lot of people don't even want to be tested because they're afraid of the diagnosis. Or they don't want to know because if you have the cover over your heads, you don't, you know, the boogeyman won't get you. And right. and, and and also, I think, you know, as as a country, as we get away from having pre-existing conditions, not mm -hmm. making that a factor that will have a big impact because people like, well, if I don't know, I won't get in trouble for it. And I think there's right. so many levels that we need to do. But it's a it's an interesting conversation. Could be probably a a, a a whole seminar on that topic. Maybe I'll create one one day and get everybody to come together with the best minds to rebrand the kidney community. Yeah, you um, can call it driving with the check engine light on and exactly. not doing anything about it. <laughs> it's, you know, and I mean, people get so surprised when I tell them I didn't urinate for 12 years. You know, I mean, just to hear that and, you know, people just, it's hard to relate to. So, but, uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Thank you, Laura. I, I know. Been great. It, it's been really fun. And, you know, I think that this innovation and transplantation and how everybody needs to be their own advocate and, you know, go demand what you need. I mean, I could tell you one thing for sure as a long-term advocate. The pain in the ass is live. And, and sometimes right. I can be a pain in the ass with my care, but I know that you need to do that. If you're not getting the care or what you feel you need, you need to figure out either convince your healthcare team or find a new one. Um, I've had to get some, you know, it's so important because there's not a lot of room for error with this illness yep. because uh, your best and most important doctor is you. It's so true. And, you know, we still have a society that kind of waits around for things to happen to them. You know, well, they would have told me if it was important. I'm like, not really. They might have forgot, you know, I mean, or, mm -hmm. you know, you need to be your own advocate and don't assume anything. Assume if you have any questions or you're assuming, send your doctor or healthcare team a note. And now that we have all these online portals, you can do it late at night and you can just I have a question for my healthcare provider and just post a question on the website and they, they do get back to you. So that's a good way yeah, when a physician true. is very busy. That's a good way to get their attention. And also, please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I imagine that doctors really enjoy, I mean, some of them may not because who knows, but don't you just love it when a patient's engaged and has questions? Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> does it make it fun? I mean, we love talking about this stuff and we love answering questions and, and we love patients to be engaged. And yeah, I've experienced what you're describing. I've had patients that 
you know, you find out they've been feeling terrible for months and, and you say, well, why didn't you say anything? You're like, well, I thought you guys would call me if anything was wrong. It's like, no, we don't know how you're feeling. You know, you need to, you need to let us know. Um, and it's definitely, there's definitely been studies that show that patients that are more engaged do do better for a variety of reasons. Some of it may be directly because of their actions, that, you know, finding out information and letting the doctors know how they're doing. But it also seems to be an attitude, like, you know, pa- patients that have a, a, a can-do attitude and an attitude that they want to be engaged in their care, they're just healthier and they just live longer and do better. Right. It, it's, it is. You don't know what you don't know. You know, the more I learn, the less I know. And yeah, it's it's so true. I'm like, oh, my God, I just learned something else. But um, this has been very informative. Uh, uh, you know, it's so exciting. I can't wait to see what the community has and the transplant community has in a couple of years. They are really pushing innovation and ways to keep the forever gift of life that we've been given. And that's the best possible thing anybody can do is do everything possible to keep the precious gift of life that was given to us by love. So uh, I love that sentiment. We started with love and we'll end with love. Exactly. I know. It sounds like a love fest and it is because it is the gift of life. And and we're all, uh, all of us who have a transplant who's given us life, we're here to, you know, be the best people and, you know, get back to the community and take care of our transplant. That's what we need to be doing. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Laurie, and and thank you for all your efforts around advocacy and awareness and your wonderful website. And uh, I wish you all the best health going forward. Okay. I always say pee all you can pee. So um, (laughs) (laughs) that's, that's, that's my saying, you know, I'm going to pee all I can pee. So, all right, you have, Have you, you have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.